0: came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster,
1: but what we can do is control our response.
2: Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place.
0: Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding.
2: And I am Xenia Chmutina.
0: This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen.
2: Thank you for tuning in.
0: Well, welcome everybody back to um, our fourth episode of the season. As you all know, who have been joining us. We've been talking to authors of books that we love in the past few episodes and of course we couldn't miss this opportunity to talk to our friend jc guyar about his recent book jc doesn't really need introduction he's been with us many times on the podcast but i'm sure you're not tired of him we've usually talked with jc about the manifesto the the accord and other things related to that J.C. is a professor in geography at the university of auckland his work focuses on power and inclusion in disaster and disaster studies it includes developing participatory tools for engaging minority groups in disaster risk reduction with an emphasis on ethnic and gender minorities, prisoners, children, and homeless people. And of course, JC is the author of the book, The Invention of Disaster, which we're going to talk about today. So welcome back, JC. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. A pleasure as always.
2: Yay. We should give like bonus points, you know, like in coffee shops, Uh, appear nine times and get I, I don't know get what time we need to think about it <laughs>
1: no nah, that, that that would mean i would be downgraded to the fan club status i thought i had scaled up to the co-host stage co-host.
2: Yeah. of course i didn't mean to downgrade the shocking behavior but <laughs> anyway so let's talk about your book oh by the way for the audience out there if you're watching this live or if you're watching this kind of And for about a week after we went live, and it's Monday, 15th of August today. Oh no, it's 16th of August, right? Where I am, 15th of August uh, And so, Rout is running kind of a little, I don't know, lottery is the right word, right? And on Twitter, and if you retweet their tweets about JC's book, you may get a free copy, which is, you know, I would encourage everybody to do it. And have a look on our Twitter page, we give the link to Routledge's tweet about it anyway. So, J.C., in your book you argue that there isn't such thing as a disaster because our current understanding of disaster is kind of merely subjective interpretation of suffering and harm and damage that allows the powerful ones to draw a line between what is acceptable and what is not. And this is quite a kind of, I guess, surprising or maybe shocking for some argument, right, In, in the, for those who are doing disaster studies because we're so set on definitions, we're almost we don't agree what disaster is, but you know, we, we love our universal definitions, right? But by, me, by we, I mean, a broader academic kind of group. And so I've heard you say now a number of times that disaster is basically an epistem- epistemological nonsense. I saw also on Twitter that some people are trying to turn it into a hashtag, which I think is a great idea. So hashtag epistemological nonsense. Let me, let me. Let's see if we can get it trending. So this epistemological nonsense actually means for scholarship for
1: disaster scholarship Uh, so first and foremost i think it's the studies which to me looks like a nonsense more than the concept itself it's the way we study disasters and i think the statement i opened the preface of the book with which is that we all now have come to consider that disasters are social constructs but at the same time we use theories, concepts, methodologies that we take for universal in studying these social constructs. And this is where the tension is to me, where the nonsense in creating that knowledge around disasters. So it's more an epistemological kind of question, more than one that relates to a particular concept. Now, to return to your early point about where we draw lines, I agree with you that there's been much discussed around how we approach the concept from an epistemological perspective. And the books by the fantastic books by Quarantale and the second version with Perry, for example, are amazing in the dialogue dialogues that they initiated. And I think this is great. But to me, this is still assuming that there's such a thing as a disaster. So the questions we've asked so far are more epistemological within a particular episteme to use Foucault's concept rather than an ontological one about what underpins the concept, what actually makes a disaster. So I think the question I would like to ask, especially when talking about an epistemological nonsense, it's not only about how we study disasters, but it's as well going further back the track and asking whether there's such a disaster in the first place and it is how i mean as you said xenia where we draw a line between what's acceptable death suffering and and damage and we've i think mostly taken it from the perspective of the negative and I'm every time I ask at the start of classes or lectures or conferences mm. what this, this what's the single word you associate to disaster it's always negative things things that mm. ass- associate with the impact the negative the harmful impact of what we call a disaster and I think there's a tension there in the sense that to me these thresholds this line we draw is always defined after normative expectations about what life is. And we don't talk too much about life. We talk more about harm and death somehow than life. But I think if we flip the thing around and talk more about life, then we could ask a different ontological question about what the disaster is and go beyond just the question of the epistemological nonsense and try to address this epistemological nonsense because we would address what the social construct is in the first place. And this is why, for example, I very much like radar, Stupid and Gather's mm. latest book, because it asks questions about life. And I say in the preface, in the it's, it's kind of a vitalist in the sense, understanding of disaster. It's more looking about what life is and how people live through things that others define as disasters. So I think there's a an ontological question to ask about what's life in different cultures rather than rolling out the same kind of theories, concepts, and methods across very diverse cultures, assuming that a disaster is the same thing everywhere. Mm.
2: But you know, I think the 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 question question of life life is really really interesting, interesting, but also also, uh, much harder harder than the question question of death, 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 right? Because the question of death is it is just the loss and this is how we count disasters right if we look at Sendai for work for action, that is the impact right that is kind of the loss of life how do you interpret life i guess we're almost kind of touching somehow here on on vulnerability right in that is life and suffering can be counted as life and who decides what that life is i think if you if you kind of start looking at disasters through the prism of life politically it becomes much more Difficult because all of a sudden it challenges the power right if one lives but isn't, but their life isn't acknowledged because they're not seen as a kind of formal citizen right, or because they do not have human rights, which are again defined right by kind of the, by the power of the west by the power of the you know former empire very often and then can that be counted as life or do do those people exist in, in between, right? And I, I think politically it would be a much, more, a much stronger question.
1: The in between is the most important bit in what you said, I think. Sure. Because I was course. not suggesting that there's always such a binary between death and life. There might be other ways of looking at life beyond just opposing it to, I know, the sort of dialectical perspective with, with death. There might be other ways of looking at life that might be hybrid, that might be in between, that might be different. I think this is important. And I mean, what you had to said reminded me of Butler, right? Because this is basically the argument. And I know you, you two are sure. writing on this at the moment. And I'm just engaging with this, these books by Butler. I was more comfortable and, and familiar with her work on gender. But I think you're right. I mean, I think that there's something to explore there. But I mean, acknowledging that Butler still writes from a largely Western Northern American and European sure. perspective. And I buy in the argument, we need to... Bored in the scope of how we mm-hmm.
0: interpret life, I think. Yeah, and like you said, we are really interested in theory. You and I talk often about theory. And we love this about your book. And your engagement with theory is quite remarkable. You're navigating from Foucault to Latour, to Rida, Vak, Said, Graham, to name a few. And it's incredible to think about, the, about this body of theoretical work in the context of disaster, because it's not something that we see very often. And so, and that's part of it's kind of you writing the book and others starting to talk about theory a bit more is part of what inspired this season and inspired us to, Mm. to want to to, um, cover this in more detail, especially to think about why do we not, why do we not think about theory? Why do we not write about theory? In disaster studies. So, we just wanted to ask you what was your journey to theory and how did you bring it into your thinking about disasters?
1: Okay, I felt flattered by your statement. I mean, I've, I've always kind of, I'm not sure, not suffered for sure, but I always felt the complex of and the theorization of my work. And I always felt that I didn't have that that theoretical pitch because I trained as many of us in this field though it's changing, as you said, Jason, but I trained as, as an applied geographer and my work was very poorly informed by theory from back in the nineties to, to at least late in the two thousands. And, and I think I was satisfied with the applied dimension of my research and somehow of my, I mean, how it was informing my practical work with NGOs and local government agencies in the Philippines, for example. But as I always say about this particular book, I think I was, I got frustrated by the gap between what I was kind of doing and what I was, or or, or the way I was, or, or the research that was informing what I was doing and the actual observations I was making of what the issues at stake and how people live on the ground. And this tension, this frustration was, I think, um, stimulated my curiosity about trying to better understand why what I was doing was so frustrating to me, but I felt as well satisfactory from a practitioner's perspective. I was missing something, and when I started to engage with theory, and although the book, the book, as I always say as well, came out as an outburst somehow of frustration and hope, sort of toothpaste or ketchup kind of writing, very quick. I mean, it, there was a build-up to that, right? I mean. Although I just started to write on on, on Foucault in the book, I engaged with Foucault more than 10 years ago and I had an outline for my chapter five in the book back in 2011, 2012, I think. So it was there. It was kind of maturing, I think. And so it was a search for more, a search for answers to some practical questions on the ground. And maybe it came as well because of doing more of this and because of... I mean, getting older, and I'm not sure. Maybe as well the fact that I was a probably as many applied geographers kind of looked down at by many critical geographers, and and. I would say almost fair enough in in, in many ways. But I think now, I mean, I think I've tried to catch up. I'm far from being, I think, I'm not sure what the term is, but sound and fully theory informed. I'm still learning every day. And when I was reading Bachelor yesterday, I was learning a lot of stuff as well. Um, So it's basically a learning journey that informs, not only my research, because I'm trying to, I'm not backing out of empirical research because While writing the sequel to this book, I'm engaging with one particular location in the Philippines, and this is still empirical, but it's for sure going to give a new twist to my practical work. And I have a few, uh, for those who know, we've been doing a lot of participatory 3D mapping activities with local NGOs and practitioners in the Philippines for the past 15 years with my partner in crime, Jake. And we have have three more, four more shortly in the Philippines, but I'm going to take this in a much more critical way still doing it but acknowledging now that by doing this form of mapping i'm not okay i'm trying to foster people's participation and that this is still what i want to do and don't misunderstand me on this i'm still committed to this but i'm gonna be more aware for sure that there's a surveillance argument i mean surveillance kind of process behind this form of participatory mapping, it's not free of any any control from the outside. And that fits within an agenda, which is probably a bit in tension with the ethos of participation. But I'm gonna be more aware of this and I'm gonna try to find ways to address this as much as possible, which I was unable to do, let's say 10 years ago, for example, or even five years ago in, in doing this practical work. So now my practical work, I'm going to still do it, but it's going to be outside of research, for sure. It's going to be outside of mm-hmm. academia. It's going to be just practical work, not something I will want to write about or, or research about. It's going to be practical work informed by a more theoretically sound kind of perspective, I guess. So it was a long answer to a short question.
0: If I could follow really briefly, just to ask what the reaction has been um, to the book and like the does the... Like, do you, what, who, what kind of scholars do you see that are enthusiastic about, this kind of theorizing and like, are you, does it make you more hopeful about the field and where it's going?
1: Definitely. And I, you were right when you said that the new generation of scholars, there's, a thing we started to, to research disasters and you to include in the mid 2010s. Or, I mean, within the past 10 years, probably have been more interested in in disaster studies and i don't know why exactly if it was a different background if it's more a sort of frustration as well as i felt with the field as it was back then but there's definitely a sort of traction and momentum at the moment amongst this new generation of young and early career researchers phd students postdocs and early academics and early researchers and that's definitely a sign of hope and if i if i got to write this book ultimately it's because this hope came on top of the frustration i was feeling and that gave me the kind of uh, made trigger to actually get it written because i was getting very positive feedback on the disaster studies inside out paper please forget about this title now I hate it, but but I think the feedback that the very positive feedback and the encouragement to go down that way I think is 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 a real sign of hope and all the momentum we've got all of us uh, with the manifesto. As I said yesterday, I just got an invite from Australia to talk about the manifesto. So I think this is something this is something which is spreading. I think uh, both in terms of depth and in terms of geographical scope. So we are getting, I mean, feedback from all over the world beyond just the signatures of the document, and I think this is a real sign of hope for all of us. And I think we should build on this moment too.
2: I think also for me, you know that I love the book, right? And we kind of we talked a lot about it. But the your bias, don't me, talk about it. Your bias. I'm biased. Okay, <laughs> I accept it. I take it. Uh, yeah. Also, thank you for the new hashtag. It's great. We're just gonna produce hashtags today. But the. One of the most exciting things for me, I think, wasn't the book itself, but kind of seeing how you were really able um, to show the evolution of your intellectual journey, right? Like, because I was following your work way before I knew you, like all disaster studies scholars, right? So your work, say for one or 10 years, kind of 12 years, is very different from where you are now. And I have had lots of conversations about this kind of things, how you know, people some people would say, Oh yeah, but like you know, I'm citing their paper from fifteen years ago and I kind of disagree with that. And but not all scholars progress. Some scholars stagnate in their intellectual journey, and we know those, right? Where the kind of they said something in the 70s and they haven't they literally haven't moved on right 50 years later and yeah so i just wanted to emphasize this i think it's interesting to see that and it's really important that as scholars we are actually able to evolve intellectually just rather than promoting the same thing you know for 100 years i think this
1: is crucial i think i mean i can't read anymore what i wrote 15 years ago but at the same time (laughs) At the same time, I couldn't write what I'm writing now without having written that before. So it's kind of, that's a journey. That's interesting as well that you're using this word, if I can tell you a secret. So I'm going to publish a very small compilation of essays that have nothing to do with disasters, but on local regional studies in the Philippines. And I've decided to call the small compilation of essays Journey in our local language, because this is actually... All these ideas about disasters, the whole post-colonial twist in my writing, I realized we are all pioneered in my understanding of my local region in the Philippines. And I was writing on the social construct, or the colonial construction, the colonial construct of ethnicity in this particular place 10 years ago in the Philippines. And it was exactly the same argument. And now I'm trying to bring them together in the sequel of the book. But when I was writing on this region in the Philippines 20 years ago, I mean nightmare i mean almost malthusian in some sense and at some point i mean terrible <laughs> but 10 years ago i mean i navigated through i mean some I mean, a journey basically of interacting with not only theory in that space but it was more kind of a, a personal kind of journey but to realize that local ethnicity is a colonial construct and everything we we accept as ethnicity is it's all coming from the west and there's no ontological question about what such ethnicity is in the first place. And it's the very same journey. And I think that has always preceded my journey in disaster studies. And that's why I'm very particular about this small book coming out. There are crap stuff in there, but as well as the kind of whole journey in one small piece, which is exactly what you talked about, Queen.
2: This is super exciting, but you also realize, right, that after this live stream we're all going to go and dig out your stuff from 20 years ago. <laughs> Just because we can, hopefully. Anyway, so, you know, let's go back to to, to the book and to kind of the sequel, right? So in, in June, July, you were in love for with me. Yay! That was super exciting. We actually, finally, we got to hang out after kind of two years COVID delay. And you've given quite a few talks to our PhD researchers and to, to colleagues. And in one of your talks, you used Lissans' question to warm up the audience, and the kind of—I was really, you know, when you asked that question, I was like, "All right, this is quite an energizer. You know, this is quite a warm-up, an icebreaker." I don't think I would dare do that. So the question was, and I quote: "How to be oneself without closing oneself to the other, and how to open oneself to the other without losing oneself." And so I want to throw this question back at you. How do you?
1: This is mean, because <laughs> you know I don't, you know I don't <laughs> have a definite answer to that. No, first, I mean, it's a quote by Édouard Glisson, the amazing novelist, poet, and philosopher from Martin in the Caribbean. I think there are two dimensions to the question somehow. There's the broader picture. And I think my own take is that we need to exert all efforts to open up the space for such a dialogue to happen in the first place. Because this is all about listening and being open to the other. So we need to have that space for such a dialogue to occur, which is not always the case at the moment. Because we have such a normative approach to studying disasters. So the first, I think the first level of discussion around this question is finding a way to open up as much space as possible. And I've mentioned many times, but as someone who's kind of, I'm not old, right? But older in my career, I think, I mean, I feel the responsibility, especially after all the the bad stuff I have done and I vote, I think there's a responsibility to for us to, in, at our stage in our career, to open up that space and to make sure that the new generation of researchers who are so keen and so engaged with theory has the space to flourish and has the space to create that dialogue and let people speak for themselves and listen and recognize otherness because this is all about otherness, right? So that's the first dimension. Then the second dimension is when you're part of the actual dialogue. And I mean, we, we had this discussion through email, Xenia essentially about recognition and going beyond recognition, accepting otherness. And I think this is very much what the whole, to quote one of Glissant's books title, it's his philosophy of relation, right? It's all about creating those relationships to be able to listen, recognize, and accept otherness. And I don't want to go through the whole, to the whole archipelagic thought of Glissant, but... I think this is important to, to, to be flexible in the way we approach things, both in time and space. And this is Gleason's thought of wandering and trembling. So wandering in space, being open and flexible to identities that are inherently hybrid. And as well, trembling in the sense that nothing is rigid and essentialized and fixed in, in time. I mean, we may return to this question or I mean, around universality and the global picture and hybridity afterwards, but I think this is important to be open and to recognize otherness and nothing is rigid, nothing is set in stone and that things change. So we can't be, we can't be sure of anything because there are multiple kinds of influences to how we understand probably disasters, if there's such a thing in the first place nowadays. And that, and that will mean that we won't be able to understand everything. And that's, to me, the most important point in Glissant's of foundation. We won't be able to understand everything and we have to recognize and accept that. And I agree that mm-hmm. acceptance here is crucial. We won't be able to fully capture everything. And that's, we won't be the expert on everything. We won't be the ultimate expert on on, on disaster at large because there's no such a single thing as disaster. And that means, to use Glissant's term, that things will remain opaque to, to us. So the way the way disasters are understood in a particular place will always remain opaque to me because I don't know that place well enough and I don't speak the language and I don't understand how people understand the world in this particular location. So I think that accepting that things will remain opaque to some extent, that they are not rigid and set in stone both in space and time, I think is crucial. And that's a big, that's a big deal because if we accept that things are opaque, that means that all, for example, the, the glossary that our field has been very keen on, right? Mm-hmm. To have glossaries of all the terms, hundreds of terms on disasters, the 1990s, a decade on disasters by the UN was full of glossaries published everywhere in the world. That means that doesn't make any sense anymore, right? Because you can't translate things anymore. Translation is mm-hmm. violent by nature. Things will have to remain opaque, and we have to accept that. That's fine. If we don't understand, that's fine. Maybe we can try to write on what's opaque. Maybe we should leave it to others who know best. And that means that it will have to be expressed maybe in different languages. Maybe it will have to be expressed in different ways. Maybe it's not written. Maybe it's in, in arts. Maybe it's, for example, what we call in Te here, that are kind of wood panels or, or with panel on the wall it could be other ways of expressing knowledge but we'll have to accept that that it's going to be opaque so it's going to be different
2: i, I agree now and the kind of the language point is really important but that kind of comes up over and over again just yesterday i was talking about that paper that jason and i did with a couple of colleagues you know about the translation and kind of problems that that, that anglophone terminology creates and kind of the power right that it emphasizes. and it, it's always surprising how so many of us are kind of bilingual, trilingual, and yet that point comes as a shock, right? That there is a kind of hegemony of anglophone thinking that translation poses. But anyway, we, I know that we can kind of, we can talk about this for a really long time. There is a question from the, uh, from, from the audience, which is kind of now is perhaps a good, good moment to answer. And so, Nabrisa um, is asking, what you were saying about perspective of life has synergies for me with public health concepts like quality of life or protecting the life, value in life. Do you think so, too?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm I'm in no way original with this. Ken Hewitt mentioned that, the great Ken Hewitt mentioned that 30 years ago, almost 25 years ago, that we have a lot to learn from public health, acknowledging that it's a very normative field as well. But I think they've been ahead of us in terms of how they look at life and how they look at addressing issues that might be or challenges in people's life if we move on to call what we call disasters now challenges in, 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 in life. I think public health has a lot to taught us. And I can engage with that. Ben Wisner was in the public health space in the 1980s, for example. So, so again, the same thing. Pioneers in, in our field, those who inspired us 40, 50 years ago, signal that to us, flag that to us, that public health is a key area of learning for from us. And very few of us, I've completely failed in that, for example. But many of us have neglected that, that signal that we need to go in this direction. So thank you, Nabrisa for, for this and the life, the life perspective, the life entry point might be a very good one to maybe find, find inspiration in public health, which is not normative because again, public health can be very normative in many ways too.
0: Yeah. I want to come back to what you were saying about becoming comfortable with being opaque and It goes against a lot of what are the demands that that are placed on us in the academy. And so how do we really, you know, inspire people to like take on the threat of not being accepted in the academy because they're arguing for something that is going against what funders want, going against what maybe the neoliberal university wants, which is like certainty and my employer wants me to be the expert on everything, right? And to promote myself rather than than these statements about, well, there's other people that know much more than me and we need to be humble. That's not what the university mm-hmm. wants to hear, right? So how, how do we inspire more people to buy into this, what's requi- required for acceptance of, a, of being opaque?
1: That's a big question, and that, that deserves an entire live stream episode, I think. <laughs> but I would say, I mean, I would say again, like like for the first question, I think there are at least two dimensions to this, and probably more than that. But I think, I think when we are suggesting that there are multiple truths about disasters, there's nothing universal in how we understand disasters and how we study disasters. I think we need to be careful not to fall into a sort of trap where we would consider, we, we would end up with some sort of essentialized and almost nativist perspectives on, on, on those challenges in life. I think we need to be careful that we don't go that way either. We are still operating within, operating, awful world, super technocratic, but we are still kind of navigating a global space. And this is why I like Gleason so much at the moment, because he speaks of this whole world, the two worlds. I I'm not satisfied for the very translation reason we we discussed earlier with the English kind of version of the two monde in French, but because of these interactions and relations between different understandings of what challenges in life might be, we have multiple loans, sharings, borrowing of different perspectives fitting into each other and this is why I mean, Glissant talks about creolization, but Baba and others would talk about hybridity. But everything is kind of interconnected within this whole world or two monde in Glissant's term, which is akin to somehow akin to and, and Escobar's pluriverse, right? Or pluriversality somehow. So we have to acknowledge this global perspective and acknowledging as well that this process of hybridization that makes things opaque are not only the result of current globalization processes or the the result of colonization and resistance to colonization, as in Baba's kind of perspective, but it could be as well pre-colonial kind of perspective. And it's likely that, I mean, the hybrid perspectives on things and understanding the world were kind of happening much prior to, to, to colonization. I mean, the very fact that in Indonesia and the Philippines, for example, we use Sanskrit words, to capture what we mean by disasters, I mean it's not a colonial heritage, right? It's pre-trading contact with South Asia. But I mean, in terms of getting these perspectives into academia and in, into the expectations of funders, I, I think we need to acknowledge again that this is all that all sits within this global kind of hybrid world, and acknowledging that the question comes down to how we legitimate different truth about disaster within these hybrid perspectives so ultimately you, you, your point about accountability to your university and to your to your funding agency or donor is about showing that within this two month or whole where they are multiple different ways of coming diverse truth, which is not a relativist perspective, because there might be a very rigorous, it's not that everything is true, right? As in, as in a relativist perspective, it's just to show that there are different ways of knowledge and truth. And this is what Latour talks about in his Mm. mode of existence, right? And it's an ongoing project. So I think there are ways of justifying that Latour has such traction around this argument that I think, I think it's a matter of showing that by pushing back against a universal approach to disasters we are not pushing back against a global perspective because things are i mean embedded within a global perspective but a global kind of i don't like the word system i too in english and that within this two moon there are multiple ways of creating truth and they are all valid and relevant and to close, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm very long, but that this is a very kind of tricky topic okay. to get back to, to, to the grip project that we discussed in one of the live streams last year. I think this is one example that this is, this is doable. I mean, UKRI bought in the idea that there could be multiple truths somehow. I mean, it's not explicitly, I guess, acknowledged, but by, by funding a project where local stakeholders, are able to design their own project without clear outputs or deliverables is acknowledging that what they will be doing on the ground is legit. It's acceptable in their views. It's It will come up with something which is meaningful. So a sort of truth, I mean, somehow, and acknowledging as well that this is all, I mean, operating again within disaster studies somehow. So we're not throwing the concept of disasters out of the window again. So it's hybrid because we are still kind of playing with this concept, but acknowledging that the locals could interpret disasters in a very unique way that is worth funding and for which deliverables may be unexpected, surprising, exciting in many ways. Sorry, very long answer again.
0: No, I like that answer and uh, the example Uh, example of the project, and it kind of parallels a project we have funded here in the U.S. from NOAA and Florida Sea Grant, who have, by funding the project, have also legitimized a completely different approach to to knowledge that we put forward in and using par and in not telling them exactly what was going to happen because we don't know and i think that's exciting that f- some funders are willing to accept that and buy into it and see what happens right
1: but uh, the, i think the, the important point and this is great to hear that it's happening as well in the US but that's, that's important to show that we are we still have this kind of global perspective. I think this is important for these funding agencies and and donors and our universities. We are not essentializing things. We are not making things look like a nativist kind of thing. I think this is important. It's not relativist either. So we are still navigating disaster studies, but trying to open up space for multiple ways of creating knowledge that are perfectly legit and meaningful locally. So we can't dissociate those kind of two levels I was trying to discuss here, not if I'm very clear, but I think we can't dissociate the global, the two-monde in Gleason's world, the pluriverse in Mignolos, and the way we legitimate knowledge on the ground.
2: I think partially, you know, the. The problem here lies not just with the funders, right, who kind of hopefully will, will change their attitude or the institutions, but also with academics themselves, because we're kind of going back to, to, to where we started, in that our training almost doesn't allow us, right, to kind of to accept multiple truths. I mean, how many conversations we all had with various people about objectivity, right, about kind of having rigorous methodologies, and by that, I mean very clearly and kind of sci- methodologies that are used in a silo, right? You're not kind of allowed to step out of that box that within which you're put. How many papers are rejected ba- based on that? And I kind of feel that for us to to step away from that universality, or not even to step away, to just consider that non-universality is possible, right? That kind of two months, it, it, it is possible. It would require a completely different, research training so that there will be a generational change. And that is the hardest part because, you know, so many academics are just stuck in, in, in their truth. Because as Jason said, right, th- this is the truth I know and for which I am known. And and why would I give it up? Because, you know, I want to be invited to a key, keynote kind of conference and wherever. It is
1: what the great Filipino historian Renato Constantino was calling the worship for objectivity. It's kind of, it's kind of the ultimate quest for yeah. What I call pantomimetry in, in, in the book somehow, and that's definitely a trend. But I believe that this is changing again over the past 10 years. We are definitely observing a trend away from that. And and this is definitely going in the right direction. This is where my optimism lies, and I'm optimistic by nature, I think. But I think this is where I see hope, because this mm-hmm. is going in the right direction, which is, I think, great. And the manifesto, mm-hmm. again, is a, is, a, is a good sign of this
2: of that. Yeah, I agree. And I guess, you know, my hope is in that more people are understanding that we we are interconnected, you know, and those conversations are happening and kind of the conversations, you know, about solidarity and just being able to kind of to work together to, to challenge this, right? And to sort of resist the status quo is I'm really excited and I we you know we were just discussing the next season where I'm kind of hoping we will be talking about solidarity and interconnectedness a little bit more. But anyway, you know we, we can talk about this for, for hours and hours. We can just kind of yeah. have a whole season on Season twenty five maybe, you yeah. know, we should make a note that.
1: Yeah. Oh wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna be old in season twenty five
2: Yeah we are a almost, old of you know.
1: I know, Xenia, but no, but... we have in our, in our diary a meeting in, it 40 years or 20 years from now? Or...
2: Yeah, we literally put a random meeting. Yeah, and so in 20 years when both all of us are kind of, uh, all of us are aged and all we'll will be like, what is happening? But it's okay, our holograms will meet, I have faith um, in, in technology. Anyway, thank you JC, thank you so much for joining us again. And for, as always, such a nice conversation you know, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Like We can talk to you for hours, so thank you for that.
1: Uh, thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure and a honor to be Especially here. Especially
2: when it's not in the middle of the night for you, right? That's good. Hopefully.
1: I mean, I remember the time we talked about, I was trying to talk about Derrida and Butler at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. I don't think <laughs> it made any sense that day. So hopefully it was a bit more clear and meaningful. Hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed. And people don't hesitate to reach out if, I mean, if you have any queries or questions, things you would like to debate, I mean, we're always here to welcome a debate and learn from everyone. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So thank you. So our next live stream is on the 31st of August, which is, I think it's in two weeks time, I'm kind of lost in time and space. And so, yeah, so on the 31st of August, we are back to Wednesday afternoons, and we are back with Camilla Boano. So we are finally starting to discuss the books that all of you helped us uh, to choose. And our first book is Malcolm Ferdinand's *Sonia Ecology, Thinking from the Caribbean World. And Roberto Barrios will be joining us to chat about the book. So we're really excited that Roberto is joining us. We've been wanting to have him on the podcast for a while. And so if you haven't started reading the book yet, definitely do. It's quite long and it's, it's quite a challenging read. So, you know, brave uh, yourselves. You gave, but you, gave, you gave me a copy of the book and, yeah, and I,
1: I apologize. I haven't read it yet. So I should... You have two weeks. weeks. <laughs> I have two weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. I know.
2: Hint, hint. Uh, but it's a fantastic read, and we would like for as many of you as possible to join this discussion online. And as always, follow us on Twitter or on any podcast app. We are gradually starting to release this season's episodes as audio editions, so you can watch the recordings on our YouTube channel, but also listen to them on your favorite podcast app. And enjoy season seven. Thank you all for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Thanks everyone. Thank you. Bye.
2: Bye.
0: Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast.
2: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon.
0: The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
2: And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you.
0: You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.